You're listening to the Metamore City Podcast, episode 25, for September 21st, 2008. Warning. This episode contains mature themes and adult language. Listener discretion is advised. Metamore City, a podcast series created by Chris Lester. For more information, please visit www.metamorecity.com. Hey there, Metamorphs. Welcome to another episode of the Metamorph City Podcast. I want to give a special thanks to everyone who helped to make this an award-winning podcast. The Podcast Peer Award for Best Production is now sitting on my desk in front of my DVD collection, and it is very shiny indeed. I'm a little disappointed that we didn't win a Parsec this year, but I take comfort in knowing that we made the finals in two categories in our first year of production. That's a pretty amazing achievement all by itself, and all of the cast and crew of Metamore City deserve to be proud of it. And hey, big congratulations to Metamore cast members Mer Lafferty, T. Morris, and Christiana Ellis for their own Parsec wins. You all deserved it. Alright, we've got an exciting episode for you today, folks, so I won't keep you in suspense any longer. It's part two of chapter 16 of Making the Cut. But first, here's a word from our friend Lisa. Hey there, fellow metamorphs. This is Lisa, host of the Hypersensitive Podcast, which you can find at www.hypersensitivepodcast.com. And you might also recognize me as the voice of Cordelia in Buffy Between the Lines Season 2. And this is the story so far. Danny Shirabi has given herself completely over to her new life as a woman, taking on the curse of metamorph in order to become an androgyne permanently. Despite warnings from Daniel's former lover, Rebecca, that she is being psychically manipulated, Danny is determined to build a new life with her boyfriend, Jared. Even if Jared is somehow making her be happy, Danny is so tired of feeling lost and miserable that she just doesn't care. Rebecca, on the other hand, is convinced that Danny is losing herself and went to the wizard Artax for help. He explained to her that the curse of metamorph splits a person's soul into two parts, one associated with the male persona and the other associated with the female side. In most androgynes, the difference is too subtle to notice, but in Danny's case, Artax believes that this bifurcation will give the old Daniel personality a chance to reassert himself and escape Jared's control. After Rebecca's ESP confirmed that the curse had split Danny's soul, she and Sasha performed a ritual spell that Artax said would reawaken the Daniel persona though he cautioned them that it would take time before Daniel would be able to pull himself together. Meanwhile, Brian, Fiona, and Callie have infiltrated the offices of Viscount Security Solutions. Brian had a dangerous encounter with Viscount's lethal computer defense system, but he managed to defeat it and gain control over the network. Opening the emergency doors from inside, he let Fiona and Callie into the office, and together they headed for the vault where the Vampire Syndicate's secrets are stored. Danny winced and put a hand to her head as a twinge of pain ran through her. She pressed her fingertips into her temples and rubbed in small circles, trying to dispel the feeling. Jared glanced over at her from across the skimmer. You okay, hon? She grunted noncommittally. I've been getting this headache off and on for the last hour or so. Probably something to do with the curse finally taking hold. 
His hand found hers and clasped it. Should we go home? She shook her head and forced herself to smile. No way. I want to see this big surprise that you're planning. I took a painkiller before we left, so I should be fine in a few minutes. Danny could feel Jared take reassurance at her words, and he smiled and turned his eyes back to the freeway. She raised an eyebrow when he took the exit that led down to the square. The only place down there that would be worth going to at this hour would be the Citadel itself. I hope we're not planning a return trip to the Panoramic, because I am severely underdressed. Jared grinned. I don't know if underdressed is the right word. That dress you wore the last time showed off a whole lot more than what you're wearing right now. Danny mock-punched his shoulder. You know what I meant, Pixie Wit? I do. Don't worry. I wouldn't do that to you. I have something else in mind. They arrived at street level and merged onto the eight-lane divided road that led toward the Citadel. The massive north face of the Arcology rose up in front of them, swallowing the sky, and the entrance looked like a tunnel into a side of a mountain. They passed out of the darkness of the street and entered a world where night never fell. Though it looked as quiet and forbidding as a mountain from without, inside the Citadel was a beehive of activity. The transit tunnels were congested with one and two passenger electric vehicles, most of them using wheels instead of lift turbines. Skimmers were too large to be permitted in most of the Citadel's passages, so they followed the signs to one of the twenty parking garages that filled the basement levels of the structure. After parking, Jared opened the trunk and pulled out a large tote bag, about three decimeters wide and nine decimeters long. He slung it over his shoulder, then shut and locked the skimmer. Danny eyed the bag with curiosity as they headed for the lift that would take them back to ground level. Okay, I'll bite. What is this, some kind of sports adventure date? Jira just gave her a mischievous look, as if to say, wouldn't you like to know, and kept on walking. The pedestrian areas at ground level were just as busy as the transit tunnels had been. A network of brightly lit passageways connected high, domed chambers the size of skyball stadiums, all of them teeming with the Friday night crowds. Tiered walkways lined with shops ran around the outside walls of the chambers, rising four or five levels over open plazas decorated with fountains and well-tended gardens. Bands of street musicians performed wherever they could mark out the space to do so, and here and there impromptu dance parties took shape as the shoppers were drawn in by the music. A grin had spread across Danny's face before she even realized it. She scanned the crowds around her and saw members of every race and every sentient species, humans and lutons and sylvan and two dozen different kinds of theriomorphs, all rubbing shoulders as they moved to the music of a dozen different cultures. It was the melting pot of Metamorph City on a micro-scale, a tapestry of sentient life, where differences of bloodline and ethnicity were swallowed up in a larger concept of we. For tonight, at least, those differences could be forgotten. The Citadel was alive, both figuratively and literally, and in the shelter of Majestrix Kaya, her citizens were invited to share in the joy and delight that she felt for each and every one of them. Jared and Danny walked through three of the dome chambers before coming to a main junction, where twenty lifts and two internal monorail lines provided access to distant parts of the citadel. They boarded an express lift, and Jared pushed the button for a floor that was nearly at the summit of the central spire. Danny looked at the button, then back down to Jared's tote bag. She smiled. She had a pretty good idea of where they were going now, 
Her suspicions were confirmed a minute later. They reached their stop, the doors opened, and Jared led the way to a moving slidewalk labeled To Overlook Park. It took nearly two minutes to traverse the distance, even on the slidewalk, but then the walls opened up around them and they stepped out into a world of green. Cobblestone paths wound through grassy hills, groves of trees, and gardens filled with flowers from all across the empire. Birds and butterflies flitted here and there, and the sounds of birdsong filled the air. Hidden somewhere among the trees, Danny knew, there was even a large pond stocked with prize-winning koi, a gift from the Emperor of Yamato. And beyond it all were the lights of Metamore City itself, visible through the massive transparent dome that was the Citadel's most distinctive feature. A gentle wind blew from somewhere, and Danny closed her eyes and breathed in the smell of pine trees and flower blossoms. I don't get up here often enough. Overlook Park was as close to wilderness as you could find in Metamore City. Even Glen Avery, with its towering trees and elven architecture, was ultimately a residential community. If you wanted to get lost in nature without straying too far from home, Overlook Park was without equal. Jared brushed her hair aside and placed a gentle kiss on the back of her neck. We're almost there. She turned and looked at him, running a loving hand down the side of his face. Lead the way. They were not the only couple in the park that night, but there was nothing like the crowds that they had seen at ground level. Friday night was a night to party for most of Metamore's young professional class. Like Jared and Danny, those who came to the park at this hour were looking for a little privacy. It was easy enough to find. Jared led her through a dense grove of woods to a secluded spot near the edge of the dome. The clearing looked out on the city below and was surrounded by trees on its other three sides. For all intents and purposes, they were completely alone. Look at the view! Danny breathed, staring out at the five layers of lights that surrounded the square. It was a surreal feeling, standing there in the middle of a forest and looking out at the largest city in the world. They were more than a kilometer above the highest level of skyways, and from up here the skimmers looked like fireflies. Makes you wonder if this is how the gods felt when they used to look down on us from the nine heavens. Jared opened the tote bag and removed a rolled-up blanket, which he spread out on the grass. To Danny's surprise, he then also pulled out a bottle of wine, two glasses, and a basket containing cheese, fruit, crackers, and cold cuts. The bag didn't look nearly large enough to hold everything he'd had inside it. She suddenly noticed the logo on the side of the bag and laughed. (laughs) You have a cornucopia bag? He shrugged modestly. Just a small one. The internal capacity is about two cubic meters. Danny whistled. Still pretty arc, though. Reaching inside the enchanted bag, Jared pulled out one more item. A portable stereo system, about three decimeters wide and two decimeters high. He set it on the grass beside the blanket and queued up a playlist. When the music began, Danny recognized the singer's voice. It was the same local band that they had heard playing at the cellar a few weeks ago. On the first night, Jared took her to his apartment. On the first night, they had made love. Danny sat down beside him on the blanket and kissed him, slowly and tenderly. When they parted, he poured a glass of wine for each of them. They fed each other morsels of food from Jared's picnic basket, laughing and talking in hushed tones while the music from the player mixed with the sounds of birdsong. 
On impulse, Danny took some wine into her mouth and then kissed Jared, letting her mouth become a chalice for him to drink from. Some of the wine trickled out of the corner of his mouth, running over his jaw and then down the side of his neck. Danny giggled and licked it off of him before finding his lips once more. When the picnic basket was mostly empty, they sat back and cuddled up together, looking out at the city below. Jared's hand found Danny's, and she opened up a mind link between them, letting her happiness and contentment radiate through their connection. So, what do you think of our little mystery date? She took a sip of wine, then leaned over to rest her head against his chest. She thought about her headache and realized that it was gone, at least for the time being. She closed her eyes and smiled. It's perfect. So, what do you think? The runner, Callie Linder, looked up at the vault and chewed her lip thoughtfully. Always did love a challenge. Physically, it resembled the -the top-of-the-line bank vault that one might see in any major city. The two-meter-high door sported a large, wheel-shaped handle in the center. Brian was familiar with the design, and he knew that the door was held in place by a solid wedge that ran along its full length from top to bottom. There were no bolts to slide tools between, no weak points that could be compromised. Any attempt to force the door open would just tighten it further. Above the wheel were two combination dials, which could only be used after the proper authorization card had been entered in the electronic reader that stood to the right of the door. It was arguably the best security that mundane technology could produce, but that wasn't what worried Brian. He was far more concerned about the thin, glowing red lines that surrounded the vault door, weaving their way across the floor, walls, and ceiling in intricate patterns. Moments ago, Callie had tossed some sort of fine silvery powder into the air, and it had revealed the wards that stood between them and the vault's physical defenses. Brian didn't know much about reading Spellweave, but what he saw looked decidedly unfriendly. All right. Should we give you some space? Callie smirked. You mean, will this kill us all if I screw up? The thought had crossed my mind, yes. She peered more closely at the lines of magic. It doesn't look like it. I see an alarm spell, a strength sapping curse, and a trigger for a binding spell. It looks like it's designed to capture intruders alive and keep them helpless until the vamps arrive to deal with them. Fiona put her hands on her hips. A killing curse would have been preferable. Brian suppressed a shudder, but he had to agree with Fiona. What's the range if it goes off? About ten meters from the looks of it. Brian caught Fiona's eye, and she nodded fractionally. We'll wait in the hall. They stepped out of the vault's antechamber and went fifteen meters down the hallway, just to be on the safe side. Brian took a seat in a chair at a nearby cubicle, while Fiona took up a watchful pose in the direction of the main entrance. He sent out a tendril of thought in her direction, trying to open up a mind link, but her shields were up and she gave no sign that she had heard him. He tried using speech instead. Elder Bakhtavar asked for permission to talk to you yesterday. Did she find you? Fiona didn't look at him, but after a moment she gave a sharp nod. Did she say anything useful? Another pause, longer this time. Just when Brian thought that she might never answer, Fiona spoke. She said that there is a deep pain inside of me. Some 
injury that I have hidden from the world, yet it continues to color my judgment. Brian nodded thoughtfully. Is she right? Fiona lowered her head, though her back remained rigid. I do not know. I have been thinking back on my life, trying to recall some moment of trauma that might have had the effect she describes. I have come to the realization that I do not remember much of my childhood before joining the collective. This is unsettling. Brian came up behind her and put his hands on her shoulders. She tensed for a moment, but then relaxed against him. He slid his arms around her waist and rested his head against hers, saying nothing. I am sorry that I hurt Rebecca. I know. It was never my intention to bring discord into our family. He planted a soft kiss on her cheek. I know. She covered his hands with hers and opened a tiny thread of telepathic contact between them. She could not give voice to the fear inside her, but for an instant she lowered her defenses enough that Brian could see the image that she held in her mind. A vast ocean, contained by walls of rock and iron, but so deep that no light could reach the bottom. Though the water's surface was calm, he could sense the roiling currents underneath. I do not know what I will find if I go down there. The pressure, the cold, and the darkness. It is possible that I would not return. You will return. We won't make you face this alone. She shook her head slightly. In the end, we all face the mirror alone. Am I interrupting anything? Brian and Fiona turned to see Callie watching them, her fingertips glowing faintly in the dim light. Sorry, but I managed to hex down the wards, and I'm not sure how long it's going to last. Whatever you're going to do, you'd better do it quick. They followed her back inside the antechamber, where Callie had drawn out a ritual spell circle that had suppressed the vault's magical defenses. Brian stepped carefully around it and went over to the electronic card reader. As he had hoped, the phony administrator-level access he had created for himself earlier was recognized by the vault, and a green light illuminated above the card slot. You're up, Fee. Fiona nodded and stepped over to one of the two combination dials. Brian gestured to Callie to leave the room, and he walked out after her. Callie looked back over her shoulder at Fiona, who was carefully turning the combination dial while pressing her ear against the vault door. The tumblers in that thing are made of polyamide thermoplastic. They're too quiet to hear when they click into position. But not for Fiona. She channels her psi power into her ears and fingertips to enhance their sensitivity. It'll take some time, but she can crack it. But not if you stand there talking about it. Brian smiled at her in apology and led Callie well out of earshot. They stopped just inside the main entrance, and Callie perched on a desk to wait. How long do you think it'll take her? Brian shrugged. It'll take what it takes. We've got plenty of time. The wards shouldn't reactivate as long as the vault thinks an authorized user is accessing it, right? In theory... Let's just hope there isn't some sort of time limit on how long you're allowed to access it. Brian sat down to wait again, but after a few minutes he got up and started pacing. Fiona's confession gnawed at the back of his mind, dragging his attention away from the mission. He regretted even bringing it up, and he wished that he had a little more of Fiona's ability to distance herself from her emotions. 
So, what's up with you and Fiona? Callie, apparently, was disturbingly perceptive for a mundane. What do you mean? The runner tucked her knees up against her chest and wrapped her arms around her legs. Look, you don't gotta tell me if you don't want to. Client privilege and all that. But I've been trying to figure out how all of you are connected since this run started, and it's driving me nuts. At first, I figured you and Becca were married, what with her having the kid on the way. Fiona and Sasha obviously share the apartment with you, and given that there's only two bedrooms, I figure they're married too, or at least lovers. But now Sasha and Bex are suddenly off the mission, Fiona is all tense about it, and I walk out and find you and her having a moment together. She spread her arms. Now, I don't normally butt in on people's personal lives, especially if they're clients, but if I've gotten myself mixed up in some kind of primetime romantic drama that's about to go Nova around me, I'd like to have a little advanced warning. Brian lowered his head and turned away, hiding a private smile. Callie had seen more of the breeding cell than any mundane had in years, and she still hadn't grasped the reality of it. Maybe she wasn't as perceptive as he'd thought, though he supposed he couldn't blame her. Don't worry. There's nothing adulterous about what Fiona and I share. We're not just flatmates. We're all part of the same cell. Each of us belongs to the others, and nothing happens without all of us knowing about it and agreeing to it. She nodded slowly. He could tell that she wasn't quite sure that she grasped the whole situation, but she was willing to go with it for the time being. Okay, so if you're not cheating with each other, what's got everybody so uptight? Brian sighed. Fee and Becca had an argument yesterday. They're working through it, but it did bring up some things that Fee hadn't realized about herself. We're all willing to help her, but she's never really taken well to needing help. Hence the tension. With her powers, I can see why. I'll bet she doesn't run into much she can't handle. Not much, no. Only the things inside herself. At the end of the hallway, Fiona came out of the anteroom and beckoned to them. They quickly closed the distance, and as they entered, they found her spinning the wheel on the vault door. The wedge lock disengaged, and she pulled the door open. Beyond the meter-thick barrier of concrete and steel, the interior of the vault was dark and forbidding. Fiona looked around inside. I do not see a light switch, she said, turning back to look at them. Hand me a No sooner had she turned her back on the vault than a dark shape came rushing out and tackled her to the floor. We'll be back with more of the Metamore City podcast right after these messages. Hey there. I'm looking for transport as far as I can get before the air runs out. Now I can pay. You want to know how to take down the U.S. government? Yeah. I think we can do business. I'll tell you what. You cut the deck. High card names as price. Oh, didn't I tell you? My name is Joss Kyle. Pleased to meet you. Now, cut the deck. Play your hand. But watch the dealer. And join the resistance. From the author of Sculpting God. Antithesis, Book One. Predestination and Other Games of Chance. A science fiction thriller by podcast novelist J. Daniel Sawyer. Subscribe today.
at www.jdsawyer.net. Predestination and other games of chance. It isn't whether you win or lose. It's how you rig the game. From the writer and producer of Thesis of Fantasy. From the mind and voice behind The Adventures of Indiana Jim comes a new tale from a long time ago in a galaxy far, far away. Star Wars, codename Starkeeper. So you're Starkeeper, eh? Courier of sensitive cargo, known in circles both savory and unsavory, has a hundred aliases and assumed names with transponder codes to match, intergalactic man of mystery. You're shorter than I expected. What's your name? Arborn Zell. Don't give me that look, Morgan. I guess they told you my uncle was dead. That figures. You don't want to get too close to me. And why is that, Flyboy? How touching. <gasps> Zell! The answer is simple, miss. Because he's liable to get you killed. Now give me the data card, or I'll take you and your ship with me. It ends now. What are you doing on my ship? Ah, uh, ah, uh, ah. Uh, I have the badge. I ask the questions. What are you doing in Curtin Law's personal files? It's a story of a galactic conspiracy. So what you're telling me is that this dark Jedi assassinated three members of the Corellian Council, and everyone is engaged in a massive cover-up? Corsac, this is Horn. I need a unit to... Ah! The Dorn Hanger! Taking fire! Oh, no, you don't! Stop! Blast. Be advised, suspect fleeing in a sonar ship. Looks like a Lone Scout A, modified... It's a story worthy of the name Star Wars. There is much you do not know, my young apprentice. Why do I suddenly have a very bad feeling about this? Sispawn, he's speeding up. What? The filtration plan. He's not gonna ma- No! You still have great value to my employer. Luckily, he won't mind if I break you myself first. Not only will the huts take the blame, the entire galaxy will fall into chaos. Star Wars, codename Starkeeper. Available September 6th at podcast.indianagym.net. I'm Steve Rickyberg from Geek Cred, the show that gives you the inside scoop on everything geek over at geekcred.net. You're listening to the Metamore City Podcast. Thanks, Steve. We're back, ladies and gents. And if you haven't checked out Codename Starkeeper yet, go do it. Indiana Jim and his crew are doing some fantastic work. I'm running short on time this week. My new career as a biology teacher is keeping me jumping, even on the weekends. So I'm going to put the feedback on hold until next time. I want to say thanks, though, to everyone who's emailed me, written reviews on iTunes, or posted responses on the blog over the last few weeks. It's obvious that people really enjoyed Brian's story, Make Believe, and I've been getting some really encouraging messages about making the cut as well. If you'd like to chime in with your own thoughts on the show, the voicemail number is 206-350-7333. You can also email your comments in text or audio to feedback at metamorcity.com or take part in the discussion forums at thecursed.org. We'd love to hear what you think. Oh, and one more important bit of info before I go. 
On Saturday, October 4th, I'm doing a joint Meet the Podcasters event with Seth Harwood, the author of the best-selling crime drama Jack Wakes Up, and J.D. Sawyer, author of the sci-fi podcast novel Antithesis. We're meeting at 6 o'clock at Jupiter's in downtown Berkeley, California. If you can make it, come on out and say hello. That's Saturday, October 4th at 6 p.m., Jupiter's in downtown Berkeley. I hope to see you there. That'll do it for this episode. I'll talk to you again in two weeks. Until then, keep it on the bright side. This is Chris Lester, signing out. Some of the music on this podcast was provided by the Podshow Podsafe Music Network at music.podshow.com. Additional music was provided by Michael Massey through magnatune.com. Magnatune.com, they are not evil. Some sound effects were provided by SoundSnap at soundsnap.com, while others were provided by the Freesound Project, located at freesound.iua.upf.edu. Metamore City is released under a Creative Commons Attribution Sharealike 3.0 license. Find out more at creativecommons.org. Thank you.